Hello and welcome to Interest. My name is Lisa Lambach. And my name is Rick Kitagawa, and thank you for joining us for our show about the greatest asset for leaders, organizations, and communities alike, trust. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Kelly Lindsay, the president and CEO of Indigenous Works. Kelly is an entrepreneur who is internationally recognized as one of Canada's foremost innovators and organizational development experts in workplace inclusion systems, models, and corporate Indigenous partnerships. Kelly is a proud Canadian Indigenous leader of Cree and Métis ancestry, who moves seamlessly between both worlds, fostering economic inclusion, well-being, and prosperity in Canada and abroad. We're excited to have this opportunity to chat with Kelly and learn from his extensive experience in workplace inclusion, effective bridge building, and cultivating trusted partnerships for workforce and economic development across Canada, the USA, Australia, and abroad. Kelly, welcome to the show. Great to join you. Thank you very, very much, Lisa and Rick. Thank you for being here, Kelly. And for folks who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and the work that you're leading at Indigenous Works? I'm speaking to you today from Treaty 6 territory in the Métis homeland of Saskatchewan and Saskatoon. On my mother's side, I have my Métis Cree French roots on my father's Polish and Ukrainian, so we joke that we like bannock and pierogies together. Uh, I was a lucky prairie kid, grew up here, spent a decade in aquatic and recreation management, was a lifeguard chairman for Canada, ran some rescue companies, and then did an MBA in 1990. And OCA had broken out. And OCA really was a change maker in Canada. And that standoff on that Montreal Bridge bothered me. And I said, what can I do about Indigenous issues? And I really sort of reconnected with my own culture. I focused on uh, we created the first Aboriginal business education program in Canada. And then fast forward to 1996, the Royal Commission report came out, RCAP. And that report said if we all, it had 434 recommendations. And this organization that I run is one of them. It used to be called the Aboriginal Human Resource Council of Canada. And today it was rebranded in 2016 as Indigenous Works. It's about employment. It's about trust. It's about partnerships. And it's about growing. Indigenous engagement in the economy. So our mandate's been unchanged and this is what I've been doing for the past 22 years. Thanks for sharing that, Kelly. It's really interesting work and it feels like you've been at the fore of conversations that are only coming into some of the mainstream conversation this past year, especially. And I want to invite our listeners into a piece of your work that Rick and I find particularly interesting and that's the seven stage inclusion continuum. And I'm wondering if you could introduce our listeners to that a little bit and give them a sense of how that comes into play in your work. I mean, most of the listeners are going to be managers, managers working in companies and company management leaders want systems. We work with systems. That's how we implement, we measure, we make progress. And we designed this workplace inclusion continuum. It is a seven stage roadmap to becoming an employer of choice and a partner of choice. And it has three negative stages to start with intimidation. Image is the third stage. The real business case starts at initiation where you discover a business case. Then you incubate it across, which is stage five across the organization. Stage six is integration where inclusion is a catalyst for growth. And finally, stage seven, you're practicing inclusion and you're a stellar example of inclusion performances at work. What people love is they can actually benchmark their practices and their strategies and receive a score on this continuum. It's a way to think about where do we put our investments? What type of practices should we be doing to attract, retain, and engage with Indigenous people? How do we develop the partnerships? What's our workplace culture? 
So this tool is worked with thousands of companies and organizations and has, has really, we think, helped companies uh, move the metrics. The challenge, not enough know about it. The problem in Canada is, I mean, people are what I call there is this engagement gap. We did a study in 2017 and we asked medium and large size companies what kind of business engagement strategies and partnerships and relationships they had. And guess what? 85% of Canadian companies of these 511 in this sample size had no engagement strategies. Indigenous engagement was not on the radar screen. They were given a score out of 100 points. What do you think they scored? And they were asked questions about what's your level of awareness, indigenous communities, people, issues, uh, any strategies you have. So the dismal score was 13%. What was interesting though, is that in the resource sector, if you look at resources, oil and gas, mining, they scored in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In the resource sector, many of these companies in Canada have, have been doing indigenous engagement for 20, 30, 40 years. These are the Suncor, Syncrudes, chemicals of the world. And so what's interesting is that it's the rest of the economy. I mean, many of the listeners here from the IT world, advanced manufacturing, retail, hospitality, indigenous engagement strategies aren't on the radar screen of many of these companies. So I say that we don't have an employment issue. We don't have an economic issue. We actually have an engagement gap. We have to, first of all, engage people together, which is really at the root of what you both believe in, which is trust. Trust and engagement. Uh, one year, we brought Stephen Covey, who wrote the book, The Speech of Trust, as one of our guest speakers. You could say that if you look at the Indigenous issue, look at the newspaper. It's a trust issue. It's a relationship issue. And that's what Truth and Reconciliation Commission is about. The word truth is in it. How are we facing the truth, which is an ugly truth? And then how are we reconciling? And reconciliation, I want people to know, should not take on this negative connotation. Elders talk about reconciliation in the spirit of optimism, growth, change. How do we reconcile together to create new ways of doing things? to respect Western and traditional ways of knowing. So like Sitting Bull said, let's put our heads together to see what we can do for all of our children. That's really inclusion at work. And I think that's, the, that's been sort of the exciting part. Although I've been involved in employment and partnerships, we have done so much to change attitudes and build what we call, I'll call social capital. And the underpinnings of social capital is trust. I love that so much. And I think it's amazing the way that you're really reframing the issue in a way that I think a lot of people can really relate to. And I think you may have answered this and it sounds like really the, the major issue is just the awareness piece. But once you engage with an organization and they buy in and they're like, okay, we have these benchmarks we can hit. Are there any stages where you're finding organizations maybe hit the biggest road bump or where they get stuck the most? And if so, why do you feel like they tend to get stuck at that stage more than others? I would say it's a good question, Rick, is that um, getting started is probably the most difficult stage. So somebody has to take the leadership role. And what we've seen is it starts usually in one of two ways. Generally, we find that there's either a CEO, he or she and their team say, we need to do something better. 
We need to engage with Indigenous communities. We need partnerships. We need people. We need skills. We're bidding on contracts and we're being asked, what is our Indigenous strategy? We don't have one. So there's an imperative coming from the C-suite. Or sometimes it comes down way down in the organization, one division working off in northern Saskatchewan or Manitoba, and they're actually doing some amazing things with Indigenous people and communities. And somebody says, geez, look what we're doing in that one little division of the company off in northern you know, Canada somewhere. We should be doing that across our company. And I would say the third is the DNI, people who work in the diversity and inclusion space. You know, these are the VPs and directors of diversity and inclusion. They have responsibility for all uh, areas, including Indigenous, and, and they've had challenges. So I would say getting started is, Rick, probably the first challenge. The second one is in terms of progressing, you will not get beyond stage five unless you have leadership commitment. You won't get the budgets, the resources. Uh, you won't get the attention of the board of directors. You, at that point, you as a manager, you'll either stay with the company and put up with it or you'll leave and go to another company that really does want to advance their indigenous inclusion strategy. So leadership at that stage is also very important to be able to move ahead. Kind of related to that as well, Kelly, you've really shone a light in your, your work on how innovation and economic reconciliation and inclusion are crucial for moving towards societal equity and prosperity for everybody, which is something that is talked about a lot in Canada. But I think the mechanics and the pathways to achieve that still feels really murky for a lot of people. And it seems to me that particularly the luminary initiative that Indigenous Works is leading is really at the core of this. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that initiative, how it came to be, and what you're looking to achieve with it. Yeah, I will. And I like this word you use, Lisa, murky. People look at the Indigenous issue and you either get a strong sympathy and support, and at the other extreme you get backlash and there's a sense of entitlement. And then there's, you know, empathy somewhere in between. So I look at this at a very high level to say that people are trying to make sense of the Indigenous issue. What is it that I can do as an individual? What can my company do? I mean, that's really what truth and reconciliation has, has sparked. But I think what we really need is once you sort of get through the heart and emotion of the gap and what we need to do together, inclusion is uncovering some amazing things. So there are Indigenous companies and communities that are generating jobs. I estimate as many as 40% of the jobs are for mainstream Canadians. They're developing opportunities for all Canadians. This story is not being told. There are over 50,000 Indigenous businesses. Entrepreneurship is growing eight times faster in the Indigenous community. And we have the fastest growing workforce in Canada, 1.5 million Indigenous people. And the workforce increased 40% over the last decade. Employers are still facing skill challenges. And there's only two new sources of, of talent, immigrants and Indigenous. And if you don't have an Indigenous strategy, you're missing out on a great pipeline of opportunity. So I think we got to take the word murkiness and black holes and this and, and make, it, make it make sense to people. They need to understand what Indigenous people want, communities want. Many of them are the same things. We want good health care, good education, good housing, safe drinking water, basics, basics, basics. But we're building nations. We're building communities. We're building economies. And I think when the two come together, people start to see the synergies, the harmony, and that's sort of the root of it. How do we get there faster? 
So a good friend of mine is Caroline Hilton. She runs Indigenomics. She's a great economic philosopher, and she just released a book, Taking a Seat at the Economic Table. And she has this aspirational goal that we can create a $100 billion economy. My question is, how are we going to get there? So what's the plan? In order to get there, this is where your question comes in, Lisa, about Luminary. Luminary is a new initiative about advancing Indigenous innovation for economic transformation, employment, and well-being. It's about how do we harness our research and innovation agenda to create that employment, that well-being, and that economic transformation. And right now, I mentioned that engagement gap a little while ago, 85% disengagement. Now factor in academia, education, universities, colleges, and research agencies. They are part of this 85% engagement gap. What we wanna do, Luminary, is create the coordination and the collaborations to spark and increase research collaborations amongst the academic world and the Indigenous business world. We wanna focus on Indigenous economic and community priorities. We wanna harness that intelligence, that know-how to create everything from new product lines, supply chains, new ways, maybe marketing traditional foods. I mean, we are hearing so many amazing ideas. And today, Luminary has 141 partners. We have over 70 universities and colleges, more than half of the business schools in Canada. We have over 50 Indigenous businesses and NGOs and organizations and groups like Fulbright Canada working as Luminary partners. So we're just, just starting. It's brand new. Uh, we've been working at this for a year gathering up the partners. We just launched the planning stage this month. We are doing sharing circles where people are coming together in two hour sharing circles to basically co-create and co-develop a plan together that is going to basically build Canada's first indigenous led research and innovation ecosystem. So it's, a, it's an amazing initiative. We think it could have tremendous ramifications for generations to come. For my children's children, as often our elders say, is this will affect our children's children, all children's children going forward. And again, Indigenous people are missing out. We're missing out on the research talent. We've spoken to the talent. They also want to know, how do I engage with communities? How do I know what priorities they want? How do I, what are the protocols? So we're uncovering some very, very rich opportunities in this area. So first off, congratulations. I'm just completely blown away by one, what you've been able to achieve. You're like, oh, this is brand new. And we have all of these amazing partnerships are and the infrastructure built there. And I just want to congratulate you for amazing work that you're doing. And a thread I would like to pull on goes back to one of your earlier answers. And you, you mentioned this engagement gap and addressing it really comes down to relationships. And you brought up the co-creation and the partnerships between academia and industry. And really, like you said, all of this comes down to trust. And I, I would love to know how you really think about trust in terms of how you go about creating these relationships and the foundation of the work that you're doing. I think the, the, the growth of this initiative, Rick, is again, the commitment of all the partners who have said, we are all in our own silos, companies, 
academia, and same with indigenous companies and people and communities. We're all in our silos and we need to do more to create what I call the horizontal and vertical connections between and among. In fact, the definition of social capital is creating the bonds and linkages between and among groups, both on this horizontal and vertical scale. What's really interesting, and this would be good for your organization in terms of trust, is that the OECD, the Organization for Economic Development, published a report one time that said nations in the world who have greater social capital actually have greater labor market outcomes. So there is a business case for social capital. But what is social capital? It's the trust and the relationships between and among groups of people. So just ask yourself, what are the relationships between and among Indigenous people and, you know, mainstream, you know, settler organizations? It's changing. It is improving. But we've asked this question and we're doing some interesting work with a postdoc. And we're really asking some questions around what do we mean by authentic partnerships? And people will say, well, you got to build trust. So Rick, I like where your question's going. Well, we say, well, how do you demonstrate that? How do you animate trust? What is it to not be trustworthy? So some of the things that we're looking at is if you can look at sort of the elements and competencies within these broad terms like trust, what we're seeing on the indigenous side in our discussions with indigenous people, companies and mainstream companies, they're saying things like, what is your level or your, your ability to be vulnerable? Vulnerability is very important. Willingness. Willingness is, are you willing to put in the effort? Will you show up? Will the CEO come to the community? These are the deeper, it's sort of like in chemistry, these are the molecules or the atoms of, of the structure, right? That you've got trust. But if you think about vulnerability, you've got leaders, and I'll use the resource company, who, you know, they know that they're going to go to a community and they're going to, in some cases, and rightfully so, be lambasted for a history of neglect, no partnerships. Right. And so you say, well, why would I go there? I don't want to be vulnerable and I don't want to go hear that. But real leaders say, I'm going to show up. I'm going to go there and I'm going to give them my word that I, I am committed. I want to grow a new partnership, a new relationship. Eventually, people will say, boy, they got a lot of trust. Well, they got trust because they were vulnerable. They showed real willingness. I think you have to be. And Indigenous people, I, I think, also need to be vulnerable. There is a lot of anger and hurt from residential school, from a history of exclusion, racism. We all saw on, on television yesterday the sentencing. And the, you know, I, I, I thought of the family of George Floyd. And, and, I mean, does that erase injustices? Does that pave the way? No, but is it a start? Yes. I think these are human issues. Indigenous isn't the only one. There are issues around the world, uh, certainly to our neighbors in the South. And we have those same issues here. So I think that we're gonna, we'll work with you to really delve more deeply and share with you these salient features of trust. Because if we can describe them like that, I go back to my systems approach in our inclusion continuum, you can actually 
train people. You can say, if you want to be a very effective leader and you want to go into the Indigenous community, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how vulnerable will you be? And if not, let's work on that. Let's get you ready so that you can be prepared to listen. Listening is so important, right? You got lots to say, but you got to listen to what these communities have to say as well. So I hope that helps, Rick, to sort of put some context around the depth and the importance of trust. It does, and it's, we look at a lot of things from a systems approach too in our work and in how we define trust and vulnerability being a real part of that. And we've looked at trying to bring a practical element for people to be able to build that trust lens with it. We have a framework we call the five facets of trust, clarity, credibility, consistency, caring, and connection. And you can look at each of these facets as being a bucket of skills and competencies like vulnerability, bravery, deep listening, and these elements are coming together. So it's it's a way that leaders can grab on these things that feel esoteric sometimes and really develop a practice in their leadership and bringing this to a really human-centered way that an approach to building that social capital and those foundations and, and overcoming some of that fear. And I'd love to talk to you about that a little bit more because you've mentioned it a little bit. I think there's some leaders who are willing, to a certain degree willing, maybe I'll say, in this space, but they're overcome by fear in getting started in fear of screwing up and making things worse as they jump into territories that they know they should move into. And I'm curious to get your take on what are some ways to maybe help those leaders get started and get started today with something they probably should have done 20 years ago, but they're starting today. You know, this fear factor is really important. And I think part of fear is people don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to do the wrong thing. I hear this every week. I bet you someone says to me, uh, you know, I, I don't want to do the wrong thing. So we, and then sometimes people are walking on eggshells as a result. And I think the first thing is you really need to, and I mean this in a sincere way, you need to be yourself. You need to be human. You cannot, you cannot fundamentally change who you are. And we're not, no one's asking that. I think that in very practical terms, what you need to do when you go in and, and, and to feel comfortable going into Indigenous community, I often use an international marketing example. So let's say you work for an international marketing firm or a company that does international business. And they say, Lisa and Rick, we're gonna send you off to Malaysia. Could be Australia. Off you go, what would you do? Well, you would do some homework. You'd say, oh, I'm gonna, I, I better understand Malaysia at a high level and I better start to understand the environmental scan. What's the politics, the legal, the environmental, the social education issues facing the community or the region where I'm going? That knowledge gathering is so important. It prepares you. Honestly, we have seen leaders, management leaders go to Indigenous communities and they haven't done one ounce of homework. They don't know the history of the community. Uh, they have no knowledge of the region and they get asked questions or they then are given a teaching about, about the community. So to me, it, 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 it's always perplexed me how people will do th things, everything right on the international stage, but we don't do it right in our own backyard. So that's the biggest lesson I've given people is honestly, don't do anything different. Do the same things you would do like going to another country, get ready, get knowledgeable. I think the second thing is 
everybody wants to uh, talk and meet with the chief and the and the and the counselors and and these are politicians and they are busy and they are managing multiple files and I have so much respect for the work that they do but I say to management leaders you need to also connect with the functional managers people running the economic development division the the community economic the education areas go to the management leaders and develop the connections and the relationships and the partnerships and the conversations with those people as well. And people go, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> well, making sense of it. And there's two of them, get knowledgeable, uh, know something about the communities that you're going into, meet more than just with our politicians. The politicians will be there and are needed, uh, obviously at certain phases, but the real building of partnerships and so on are going to come from the managers and the CEOs on the Indigenous side as well. I think third, and I'll give you one third tip, time. We're talking about trust, relationship building. So people are on, on different continuums. Some communities have now a good roadmap of building experiences and partnerships. And so you can almost fast track and work with them. So you need to understand what, on a spectrum where they're at. Or are they a community that's really, you know, starting to form their own partnerships for the first time? So these could require more time, more exchange. And, you know, you used words like bravery and humility. I think those are great, great words and concepts to embrace as you go into these. And I think, you know, you have to go in. I mean, be bold. Instead of walking on eggshells, I say, we want to hear I want these companies with their innovations and their products and their ideas and their partnerships come. We want to talk. We want to see what we can do. But there is that phrase, let's talk so we can get to know each other and let's get to know each other so we can talk. Got to get to know each other. That is so much practical wisdom for our listeners. So I want to, I want to thank you, Kelly. That was, I mean, from everything of just being yourself, to, to really listening and doing your homework and also be willing to put in the time to these relationships. I think that's all so important in, in all of the work that we're doing in terms of engaging Indigenous communities and just doing the work as a leader to show up for a team. And you mentioned people needing a roadmap a little bit. And I think as an innovator like yourself, you haven't always had like a clear-cut map. And I, I would say that Part of the fear for a lot of people is the lack of that map and the lack of trust with themselves. And I would love to know how in your career, you've built up the trust in yourself to really go forward and make these amazing changes. Hmm. I think, I think part of it, Rick, is roadmaps or the leadership required to create the roadmaps is, I think, given to us. I've been challenged by elders. There's an eagle feather up there. Mm -hmm. That is about pushing forward, developing more roadmaps. There's more work to be done. That, that's what that means. Those are our orders of Canada saying, don't look backwards, look forwards. Uh, there's more work to be done to create this social and economic inclusion. COVID has taught us we all need each other. Yeah. We are in a world, and there are some amazing Indigenous groups who, and communities, as you know, I mean, Iqaluit was the last to even get an infection, you know, uh, the virus. 
their ability for resilience. I said, look, I think many of these Northern communities are doing better than the Southern communities in terms of adapting, but it taught us we need each other. There was a, a manufacturing plant by Pasqua First Nation in Saskatchewan, and they took their manufacturing plant and they created what they call the bumblebee. It's a plastic hub that goes over a child's desk. They're $400 a unit. They're selling them around the world. I sort of look at the innovation and I think, wow, these are great. So I, I think it's a partnership. They have partnerships. There is, it's different than 22 years ago. It's different than 30 years ago. I think people are realizing that we need to find and we can't do things on our own. Partnerships and building Indigenous-led strategies and capacity is critical. But, you know, once we get there, I, I keep saying we need the partnerships. Canada is a small country. We're in a global marketplace. Uh, we have opportunities to create initiatives and partnerships with our neighbors to the south, and we should be. We have people who are related that live across both sides of this border because they never had a border. So there's opportunities here to really, I think, spark growth. I think luminary, you know, not to be corny about it, but Northern Lights, we are trying to shine the light on new ways of doing things and light up the sky. And the people and community and partners that we've brought together, there was a phrase by a guy in 1958, Gantafor, and he had this thing called the power of weak ties. And he talked about the weak relationships that you have can actually be some of the strongest relationships you have, and they're built on trust. So, you know, you some of these things, I have you develop relationships across this country and the strength and the power of them is that they are weak. We know each other. We're both sort of saying we need each other. We're going to move together. And that's sort of what I think is amazing for Canadians is that once people are pulled towards a vision and they can see themselves being able to co-create and co-develop it and commit to it, you can make some tremendous change together. And that's why this is now going to take, you know, six, seven months. You got to co-create and co-develop. I said, you got to take time. We are taking time because design is important. And we're doing this for the long run. We're looking at what are, what are the impacts we're going to make. And I don't want, the days are gone. Corey Wilson, my friend at BCIT says, you know, nothing about us without us. Nothing about us without us. Great, great line, right? It doesn't only apply to research, it applies to everything. And if you look, even in the resource sector, you look at the level of friction that was there 20 years ago compared to today, it's gone from 100 friction points to one or two maybe, right? Or none. Yeah. So we can, we can change, we can build these, these effective partnerships and, and relationships, but building the institutions and the capacity is how you build civil societies. And that's what indigenous people want and are doing. There, we want to build these institutions and strategies that can be good for everybody, uh, not just for the Indigenous people. We can be informing on bringing in these worldviews and ways of doing things and knowing, and that really is inclusion at work. It really is a humanitarian principle as far as I'm concerned that humanity is about inclusion and inclusion is about humanity. I think that's a beautiful place to maybe draw this conversation to a close and, and hopefully have many more. I'm 
really grateful for your thoughtfulness and your generosity, Kelly, and how you approach this and your boldness in doing this work. I think it's absolutely extraordinary in the vision that's in it. And I can just say as a Canadian, it gets me really excited to imagine what the future of Canada can be and being a future of this country that embraces everybody who's here on this land that we've taken. So I wanna thank you for the work that you're doing, the work that you're leading. And I know we spoke specifically about luminary initiatives, some other things as well going on at Indigenous Works, but I just wanna give you space. Are there other things coming up for you and Indigenous Works that you'd like our listeners to know about? So in addition to the seven stage inclusion continuum, after now benchmarking these practices and strategies for almost you know, over 15 years, this year we've released and uh, launched the first ever Indigenous Works Employer of Choice program. It's a certification program and companies are looking for ways to certify themselves, to showcase to the public, to companies, to the Indigenous marketplace that they indeed are an employer of choice. And this employer of choice certification program, we just started to roll it out. It's based on the same diagnostics and systems approach that we've had. We have an instructional guide to help employers because again, we don't want people to feel lost. Time is the worst enemy. So we want, we want to economize on people's time and people can go through this. And it's good for rookie companies who are looking to get started because it's a good way to benchmark yourself on a certification. And for mature companies, it's a good way to show that you are maturing and actually becoming best of class. And Indigenous Works are an ISO certified organization. We like ISO. And so we've modeled our certification program around that ISO thinking and that design. So it's about achieving quality standards, continuous improvement. These are some of the principles of, of, of ISO certification. So uh, yeah, your listeners can check it out, uh, both the Inclusion Continuum and the Employer of Choice Certification Program. Very, very practical systems and tools that can help companies launch or grow their, their Indigenous engagement strategies. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much again, Kelly. And where is the best place for our listeners to go and find out more about you and the work that you and Indigenous Work are doing? So that work and the work of our organization is at indigenousworks.ca. You can find information uh, about the membership program, employer of choice. There's a link to Luminary. We also have a charity, Kachita. Kachita is a charity about helping Indigenous youth discover their human resource and career potential, including youth with disabilities. You can find links to that partnership study I referenced as a great partnership summary. So, and lots of free tools and resources that we have on our site to help employers with their Indigenous engagement journey. That's amazing. We will link to those in the show notes so people can find them readily. And I think people will be really excited to engage and discover more. Kelly, thank you so much for your time today and for, for connecting with us. Thank you, folks. Thanks, Kelly. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Trust is better together. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with someone who you think might appreciate it. And don't forget to leave us a review. The In Trust podcast is produced by Spotlight Trust, where we help leaders and organizations put trust at the center of their work so that they can achieve more than they ever thought possible while adapting to our fast-changing world. If you'd like to get in touch with us, simply email podcast at spotlighttrust.com. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future. 
But one thing we are sure about is that the future is trust. Conveniently, this also happens to be the title of our new book. The Future is Trust, Embracing the Era of Trust Center Leadership, is being released later this spring. Rick and I are so excited to bring this reimagination of what a leadership book can be. Stay up to date on book launch details, special previews, exclusive pre-order specials, and more by visiting thefutureistrust.com.